we've been talking about communion with God. Um, we've been working through this issue uh, starting in early, ju- in early June. We've been working through what does it mean for us to commune with God. If you haven't followed with us, I'd encourage you to just kind of go back through the podcast and kind of get caught up, not because they're just so good, but just because uh, I think this topic is so important for us to kind of sink our teeth into and really think deeply about. Uh, There's nothing more important for this day and age, particularly as we face the things we face, than for us to talk about our communing with God himself, Uh, for us to be formed in the presence of God as we recognize our union with Christ, we have communion with God, and we, we we can't talk about anything more important than that. Occasionally, I'll, I'll have uh, the joy of talking to a parent uh, about their time with their kids, and, and almost uh, always a parent will get to a, pl- a place where they'll be directive with their kids, they'll be talking with their kids, and the child will say, hey, you know, they messed up in something, and the, ch- the parent is sitting down with them, and, and the child will say, I feel like I can't do right. I feel like uh, I can't do the things you've ask me to. I feel like every time I try to be good, I can't do it. It seems like I have this conversation where parents are having that that talk with their kids. And it's this beautiful gospel moment, isn't it? It's this place where you can look at them and you can say, you're right. You can't and you won't be good on your own. You can't and you won't be good. You could be a real jerk and press in and say, you are an absolute moral wasteland, you know? No, but you see this, and you see this in your kids, that they, they can't do the things that you've asked them to do. They, they won't always have a good attitude. Sometimes they will disobey. They will do those things that you've asked them not to do. And it's this beautiful opportunity to look at them and say, you, you can't always obey. In fact, you won't always obey. But the good news is that Christ has obeyed in your place. The interaction brings the larger question to the service, how can we be good? Are we just bound to be depraved forever? In what sense has God equipped us to do differently? For years, Christians have been pounding pulpits on on what's good and what's bad and, and all of these things, but we've forgotten sometimes to talk about how we're transformed to be able to keep those rules, to, to do those things. As we talk about communion with God and union with Christ today, I think Paul has something deep and rich for us here in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Here's our big idea. We have access to the Father through our union with Christ. We have access to the Father through our union with Christ. And we're going to just see this in two different phases in our four verses. First, we are to seek the things above. We're to do the right things verses 1 through 2, and then in verses 3 and 4, we'll see we will appear with Christ in glory. And I I promise all of this will kind of come back around to this idea of how we do well, how we be good, as it were. I want to pause for just another moment and just ask God to bless our time here. Lord, we ask now that you would teach us through your word, open our minds and our hearts, allow us to see and hear in your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul starts off and he says, we are to seek the things above. This is what I read in verses 1 1 and 2. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Now, before we kind of jump into all of this, we've really got to discuss what this letter of the Colossians is really all about. See, when we were in the city of Colossae in the first century, there was this kind of heresy that was kind of moving around through the ranks. There was a a wrong-headed idea about worship in Colossae at this time. And Paul seems to kind of quote from this wrong-headed philosophy that's present in the city of Colossae in chapter 2. In verse 18, look at chapter 2, verse 18, he says, uh, he seems to be quoting from these people, delighting in humility and the worship of angels. Then later on in chapter 2, verse 21, he, he actually does quote from them, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. This is kind of a, a rule for living that they had. See, this religion required the abasement of the body, these kind of food restrictions, these, uh, these days of the calendar that you were supposed to fulfill, and all of this was kind of centered around the worship of angels and these uh, heavenly beings. And this hap- what happened was that this pagan belief had kind of syncretized with this Christian belief, and what you had was kind of this composite religion that existed there in Colossae. On the outside, it looked and smelled like Christianity. It, it asked you to do moral things. It asked you to, to be a good person, to be moral, to be kind, to, uh, to kind of deny yourself in, in these specific ways. But it lacked the heart of the gospel, the transformation that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. In order to kind of highlight this understanding, I want to kind of back up out of chapter 3 into chapter 2 and show you just a little bit of what Paul is dealing with in in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. So if you have your Bibles, just turn back a little bit and look with me there where Paul says this in chapter 2, verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world as if you were still, excuse me, if with Christ, to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not, <clears throat> do not touch, referring to things that are all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, Paul gets right to the point here in these verses. He said, if you're dead to the world, why do you submit to world-oriented rules? That is, if spirituality is otherworldly, if it's to be connected to heaven as we so desire, why are all of your religious forms earthly? He quotes them in verse 21. He's saying, hey, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. You ever feel like that? You ever sound, does that sound familiar to you? As we talk about Christianity, a lot of us just think about this list of rules that we try to keep, right? You're, you're not supposed to smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do, all of that thing. I, I can't use that joke any more times. It's definitely, it needs to be buried, Right? See, this is a spiritual life oriented around it, oriented around those things that you are supposed to do. It tells you that spiritual attainment is to be achieved, and this is accomplished through this strict adherence to these rules, to just disciplining yourself, to just gripping down and white-knuckling your way through a life of obedience to this God. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I remember once I was meeting with a gentleman, we were talking through some issues in his life, and we turned to this passage, and he literally looks up at the end of this, and he says, how long has this been in here? 
jokingly, right? We're unfamiliar with this because we think about Christianity in such terms as this. Don't, hate, don't taste, don't handle, don't touch. Paul tells us what's wrong with these things in verse 23. He says, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That is, creating new rules to stop you from acting on the flesh doesn't stop the flesh from being fleshly. You can starve a dog for days, but in the end, he's still a dog. And the time that you do go to feed him, he's just going to be more dangerous for not feeding him for that long of a time. John Owen says it this way. He says, sin is never more alive than when it's unable to serve its lusts. See, unless we address the power of our lusts, we will never get rid of them. If we never address the, the heart of the issue with our sin, it will always remain with us. It's with this context in mind that Paul starts his, his kind of turning of the argument in, in Colossians chapter 3. And so we've read verses 1 and 2, and Paul is saying, hey, you've got to seek the things above. Paul wants us not to root ourselves in these earthly, hollow philosophies, but to seek the things above. And what he does in these two verses is he gives us three things. He gives us a condition, he gives us a command, and then he gives us a clarification. He gives us a condition a command and a clarification. What's the condition? Paul starts with this condition. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. You see that word, if? Makes it conditional that the rest of these verses are really kind of uh, relying upon this idea that you would have been raised up with Christ. See, Paul sees raising as essential to seeking that you can't be one who seeks heavenly things without having first been raised with Christ. See, in Paul's view, only those who have been raised can seek the things above. This condition is essential to the pursuit that Paul's calling us to. I mean, imagine calling dead men to be alive is asking incapable things or to asking incapable people to do capable things. It's asking blind men to see. It's asking dead men to walk. It's asking mute men to speak, deaf men to hear. It's asking dogs to play cards or birds to bench press. It's impossible to their nature. They can't do those things, although the painting of dogs playing cards does exist. And so Paul gives this condition. If you've been raised up with Christ, well, what's the command then? Well, the command is seek the things that are above. If we are new in Christ, we should seek to be like Christ. We read this phrase, and we see that, that term, things above, and it sounds very Oprah-ish, doesn't it? We should be spiritual people, just spiritually minded. You have a really low pulse. You speak in hushed, quiet tones. What does Paul mean when he talks about seek things that are above? What does it mean for us to be spiritual people? Paul here is probably speaking about something ethical. In fact, he gives this clarification in verse 2, and he says uh, that we shouldn't seek, we should set our minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. 
And really, this is kind of a clarification because later on in verse 5, look with me at verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, that which is, what? Earthly. And he goes on and describes exactly what it is to be earthly. It's sexual immorality. It's impurity. It's passion. It's evil desire. It's covetousness, which is idolatry. And so Paul's not talking about just being the soft-spoken, mild-mannered spiritual person. He's talking about living in righteousness. He's talking about putting on this new life in Jesus Christ. And yes, it comes with moral implications, but the whole broader sense is that we would look and smell like Jesus. That you and I, as we seek things above, wouldn't just be content to be spiritually aloof, but rather be present in practical righteousness with our neighbors, that we would embody the person of Jesus to those around us. See, here's the, the problem that we see in this, in this situation in Colossae, is that we are content as sinners to create religious modes independent of God. Have you ever noticed this, that we're content, our sinful hearts desire to create religious models that exist without God involved in them. It's natural for us to see that the gate to heaven has been closed. Remember when we were in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God closes the gate to Eden, and he sits this really cool angel with a sword of fire in front of it. We're no longer given access to heaven, and what we do instead is we kind of create our own schemes I think it was Voltaire who said, uh, God created man in his image, and man returned the favor. Now, you and I are prone to creating what we would call idols, these things that we'd worship, these things that look and smell a little bit like God, but they're really not God at all. So what we do is we create these different ways of approaching God. And then we say things like, see, there's many paths up the mountain, and there's all these different kind of Monikers that we buy onto these uh, or buy into these these different phrases and philosophies where we say we can get to God on our own. I was thinking this week though. Imagine uh, your kids said to you, "Hey, let's go to Disney World. Wouldn't that be fun?" And you say in your mind, you're saying, "I really don't want to go to Disney World." Like kids, just so you know, that's what every parent is thinking in their mind, right? They say it's the happiest place on the earth. Not really. So the parent then, just imagine this. What if a parent went out and they found a, a property and they bought like a used Ferris wheel on eBay and they found like a used rat costume from a Chuck E. Cheese from 1985 and they put your mom in the rat costume and, and then they took you there and they said, look, it's Disney World, kids. And they're, you know, eventually they're on the Ferris wheel for the 485th time and they're like, this isn't as fun as I thought it would be. This isn't Disney World. We've created something else in, in the place of the real thing. We've, we've tried to make another access point into heaven, and it's not heaven at all. You tell your kids that you're going to Disney World. You tell them that it's Disney World, but they're looking and saying, this isn't Disney World. This is nothing like it. And as Paul describes this self-made religion to the Colossians, don't taste, do not handle, do not touch. I mean, it's kind of like Disney World, but not really. See, true religion seek thing, seeks things above. And it's not content with the earthly things. 
It recognizes that they're just a, a shallow representation of what already exists in the presence of God. And so God wants us to see uh, how we can seek his power, how we can seek this authentic relationship with him, not uh, falling for these false gods, for these false access points into heaven. This is where Paul transitions into verses 3 and 4. Not only are we to seek the things above, we're called to do so because, verses 3 and 4, we we will appear with Christ in glory. Look at verses 3 and 4. For you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, verses 3 and 4 tell us that these things have happened, that they are happening, and that they will happen. Let's just kind of march through these verses just quickly and kind of get the lay of the land that that Paul's giving us some different phases of what's happened to us in Christ. In verse 3, he says this. He says, uh, you have died. That's something that's in the past. It has happened to you. If you have faith in Christ, you were buried in the tomb with Jesus through faith. We talked about this a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 6, right? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death, Paul says in Romans 6? But he goes on and he tells us something that's true right now. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That right now, Christian, you're not just buried in some tomb in the Far East. The Middle East, excuse me. Far East would be wrong. Middle East. Right now, your life is hidden with Jesus. By faith, he has incorporated you into himself so that he covers you with his fullness, so that his sacrificial blood pours over you. You no longer show forth your sinful humanity before the God of the universe. Right now, Christian, you are hidden with Christ in God. What about the future? Verse 4, he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory, right? Present tense, future tense, that's what's happening here in the future is that someday when Jesus appears in the clouds, you and I will be revealed for that believer that we are if we're in Jesus. When Christ appears in the clouds, everything will make sense to your unbelieving coworkers, to your friend that doesn't trust in Jesus, to your relatives that you have those awkward Thanksgiving conversations with. Everything will be revealed. You'll be shown to be in Christ. It kind of corroborates with what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says that, um, that the creation longs for the sons of God to be what? To be revealed. And so God will reveal us as he reveals Jesus Christ. And so what happens here in verses 3 and 4, just to kind of get nerdy with me here for a second, okay? We're going to dig into this passage. He's, he's going to give us some right now reasons for why we should seek things above, and then he's going to give us some going-to-happen reasons for why we should keep seeking the things above. And really, I have four different reasons for you. You might take notes or write these things down, but they're right here on the face of the text. Reason number one, believers have died with Christ. 
We spoke about this two weeks ago, but but Paul turns us to the same concept here in Colossians chapter 3. Jesus' death has become our death by faith. And so what that means is that you and I no longer get to seek the earthly things that we want. Now, as we're renewed in our nature with Christ, reason number one for seeking things above is you're dead. You're dead with that sinful nature. It is buried in that tomb. And so you don't continue in that nature any longer. So reason number one, believers have died with Christ. Reason number two, believers are hidden with Christ. We've read this. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ. That word means exactly what you would think it means. It means to conceal or to hide. It's the same word we get the word crypt or cryptic from. It's used in, in various places in the New Testament, but most notably, it's, it's used about Moses. When Moses was in the basket as a baby, that they were hiding him. They were hid, hiding him inside this basket so that Pharaoh might not find him and kill him. Paul is saying here that believers are concealed with Christ. I was reading uh, on a website about this earlier this week from Ligonier. Excuse me. And the author, Eric Watkins, was saying that Adam and Eve hid from God due to their sin. And later on, at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 6, that the kings and authorities of the earth will cry out and say, let the mountains fall down on us, that they would hide us from the mouth or the, uh, the sight of the Almighty God. And now, Paul uses the same kind of term for our hiddenness in Christ that shelters us from the wrath of God. As Jesus bore our death, our punishment is paid, and he has sheltered us from God's wrath. So you and I, we seek things above because we're hidden with Christ. Reason number three is that we are believers, as, as believers, we are in God. It's, it's not enough for us just to be hidden with Jesus. And, you know, think about this Russian doll concept. You ever see those, what do they call those, babushkas or whatever they are, right? I probably just totally botched that, just so you know. But there are these little Russian dolls that one hides inside of the other. Well, we're like that. We're hidden inside of Christ. But inside of that is a, another. We are hidden in God. We're in Christ, hidden with Christ, but we are encapsulated, as it were, in God himself. Because we are hidden with Christ and Christ is in God, it stands to reason that we also are in God. That is to say that we are reunited with the Father by faith in Jesus, that the blessing of the cross was not just forgiveness of sins or even eternal life, but instead we have been reconciled to God through Christ. That's a big theological word, right? Reconciled. We don't use it today. We don't say, why don't you go be reconciled to your sister? You know, why don't you, uh, I know you hit your brother, but you need to be reconciled. That's the idea of it's taking away of enmity. There's wrath between God and myself. In my sin, I deserved punishment from God. This is what John chapter 3 says, that the wrath of God was abiding on us before we knew Jesus. And so God has taken away that enmity, and he has made us, reconciled us to God through the death of his son, Jesus. Verse 4, those are all right now reasons. But verse 4, Paul gives us a coming soon reason, doesn't he? We've talked about how this is the future tense. This is something that's going to happen down the road. 
But reason number four is that we will appear with Christ. While we're currently hidden with Christ, we will be revealed. Someday, just imagine this, someday, when Jesus appears in the east, when the whole world sees him, when we're caught up in the air, we will be revealed for our faith in Jesus Christ. Is there a better reason to seek the things above than that someday you will be above with Christ? You will be in glory. This is what Paul's getting at here, isn't it? So as we look at these verses, we see Paul commands us with this really far-reaching commandment, right? In verses 1 and 2, he calls us to seek the things above. I mean, we've talked about that's, that's encapsulating of, of a lot of different things, but it's moral that we would put off the former patterns, that we would become something new like we are in Christ. But underneath that is this foundational aspect of we are to seek things above because of the truth stated in verse 3 and 4. We seek the things above because we're dead to earthly things, because we're hidden with Christ, because we're in God, because we will be revealed with God, with Jesus in glory. You might stop and say, Jason, this is like a whole bunch of nerdy theology stuff. What in the world does this have to do with us? See, we talked about how we're prone to make up our own religion, to make up our own access points to God. We're prone to, to that, that commandment, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. That's, that's something that just seems natural to us. But this morning when we read these verses, we recognize that union with Christ is our only hope at reunion with the Father. Union with Jesus through faith, as we trust in Jesus, as we're buried with Jesus, as we anticipate resurrection with Jesus, is the only hope we have at actually being reunited to God the Father. Jesus is both sufficient and necessary to reconcile us to God. Everybody here went to VBS at some point in your life, and you learned the verse, John 14, 6, right? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, what, comes to the Father except, okay, we all need to go to VBS again, okay? No, no man comes to the Father except through me. And we recognize as, as Christians that that's really pointing to the exclusivity of who Jesus is. There's no one who comes to the Father except through him. Well, this morning, I just want to unpack. I just want to take a moment to unpack this idea that Jesus is necessary for us to be reconciled to God, and he's sufficient to be reconciled to God. Let's start with that first one. The death of Jesus is necessary for us to be reconciled to God. We've said it before here, even this morning. There's that phrase that you hear a lot of times. There's many paths up the mountain. Have you ever seen the, the coexist bumper stickers? Like there's the, the sea that represents the, the Muslim moon. There is the, uh, I'm going to mess this up. The X, I think, is the star of David recognizing, recognizing Judaism. And the, the T is the cross of Christianity. And the idea of this bumper sticker is like, hey, all these things are kind of the same. They're all on equal footing. Uh, in fact, later on, someone kind of adjusted it and uh, included Wiccan philosophy and some other things. But the point is that our world sees all religion as valid. All religion kind of leads us to this relationship with God. Yet, 
What we see in John 14, 6, or even here in Colossians 3, is that God gives us access to himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus presents himself as absolutely necessary to be restored to, to God himself. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But by me. Acts. There's no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. So Jesus is constantly telling us about the exclusivity of his own life and death for us to be reunited with God, that there's no path to God that doesn't go through Jesus Christ. You know how controversial of a message that is? First of all, you're going to look someone in the eye at your workplace and you're going to say, your sin deserves death. Your rebellion against a holy, righteous God deserves eternal punishment. And the only way to do away with that is through Jesus and his death and resurrection. So the death of Jesus is necessary. Secondly, the death of Jesus is sufficient. We might view this as the opposite side of the same coin It's by Jesus' substitutionary death that we are restored to God, and that's all we need. You know, I'm a little concerned as we talk about communion with God that we might develop some levels or hierarchy of spirituality, that we might start to think of ourselves as more spiritually attained because we we pray or we read our Bible or we memorize verses or whatever else. See, the truth is that you and I, if we are in Christ, we have everything we need for full, unfettered access to the presence of God. Amen? There's nothing that you still require, Christian, that would get you a little bit further into the throne room of God. Paul says this in Romans 5. He says, if we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We we see it when we talk about Hebrews chapter 10, that uh, we have confident access before the throne of God through the blood of Jesus, his son. See, there's no additional extra step needed to reunite us with the Father. This is why all of the claims of hyper-spirituality are off base. You ever meet somebody who claims to have the secret sauce to Christianity? We don't need any greater security clearance. We have Christ. See, Jesus is both necessary and sufficient to give you, Christian, full access before the throne of God. What this means for us is that the crown jewel of Christianity is knowing Christ. Can I ask you a question here this morning? Do you love these statements from Paul? I found myself just asking this myself as I was on a a walk this week. Uh, I, I know these claims, but are these claims sweet to me? Are they beautiful to me? Do they capture my imagination? Do I love these statements? This statement in verse 3, you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
See, I'm afraid that some of us this morning, we might see these claims that we are hidden with Christ in God. We might view those like we think about leprechauns or unicorns, right? They're, they're fun things to imagine, but they don't actually exist. We might say, this is fine that Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3, but this is a folklore. This isn't actually something I believe in. Of course, that recognizes that you're, you're probably not in Christ. You're probably not someone who is trusting. If you view what Paul is saying here as folklore, as, as just fantasy, you're probably not in Christ. But there's another category of people here this morning, myself possibly included, that we think about what Paul is saying here in these verses, kind of like we think about the Coriolis effect or trade winds or whatever else, some kind of obscure concept that really doesn't touch my day-to-day life. In fact, as I think about these concepts, as we think about these concepts, we might think of them as immaterial. That's a a very good term for us to use. Immaterial is a fitting word because it, it kind of nods to our modern sensibilities. Immaterial things things we can't see and taste and touch, they don't matter to us. Now, I recognize the pun. Immaterial things don't matter, okay? Nerd jokes, right? And so they're off our radar. We believe them, or at least we give some type of mental assent to them, but we don't go through our day centering on what it means for our life to be hidden with Christ, for us to be connected with God. You go through your Monday, and you have the TPS reports you have to fill out every Monday evening or afternoon. You go through all of the meetings that you have, and and you get to the end of the day, and you put your head to the pillow, and you try to pray, but you haven't thought about your resurrected life for 24 hours. Does anyone else go through that, or am I the only one? See, the way Paul speaks here. In verses 1 through 4, though, is that our union with Christ gives us access to the Father, and that's foundational to our life. I just want to draw attention to one quick word at the beginning of verse 3. You see the word there? It starts with an F, ends with an R, has an O in the middle. Four. He's connecting what he's calling us to in verses 1 through 2 through the rich theology that happens in verses 3 and 4, that you cannot uh, really seek the things above until you've actually known what it is to be hidden with Christ in God, to anticipate that someday when Jesus is revealed, we will be revealed with him. See, it's as if to say that there is nothing more important to your workaday life than being hidden with Christ and God. It is to be at the center of our effort to be seeking the things above. That is, you and I cannot live out the commands of the New Testament without accessing rich life in Jesus Christ. Just imagine with me, there's a train in California. Now, if you're as bad at geography as I am, geography, California is on the complete West Coast, and this train's trying to get to Ohio, right? And it has to cross over these big things called the Rocky Mountains, Right? And uh, there's this train. It has a massive load, uh, mile long, whatever else you want to say. And you're going to put my Toyota Corolla at the front of it and ask it to haul it across the nation over the Rocky Mountains. Is that going to work? No. You need something powerful enough. You need something that will be strong enough to get that load over this massive obstacle. See, as you and I are renewed in Christ, it replaces our engine. 
It gives us the capability as we're hidden with Christ in God, as we anticipate the God who will reveal Christ and reveal us with Christ, we recognize that God has changed out the engine, that no longer are we weak and unable, incapable to fulfill God's law. Now as we are raised to new life in Christ, you and I are capable of doing what God has called us to. This is why you can look your child in the eye and say, yes, you fail, but God has met the requirement uh, that he demands in Christ. And now, as you are in Christ, he has pushed his Holy Spirit into you so that you are capable of doing what God has asked you to do if you are believing in Jesus. You see what happens here? You and I are doomed to fail if it's not for Christ. And too many times we think of ourselves as just these people who have been made righteous through Jesus, but we've got to work everything out. We've got to strong arm our way to righteousness. And what God is saying in places like Colossians 3 is saying, no, you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. You will be revealed with Christ. How can we know that we've been united with Jesus? I love what Paul does here because he gives us he gives us some litmus tests. If you look at verse 5, how do we know we've been raised up to life with Christ? Put to death therefore what is earthly? Those who've been raised to life in Christ, they put off the former view of sexuality that's described in verse 5. They put off the earthly things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. This was a particular application for these Colossian people that they no longer lived out their sexual life as they formerly desired to. Now they're changed. Now they're raised to new life in Christ. Look at verse 12 with me, another litmus test that Paul gives. But put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Is your life changed in this way? Do you find yourself more patient, more loving, more kind with your friends and with your neighbors? See, this morning we recognize that Through Christ, we're reunited with God. That's the powerhouse, the engine for what God has called us to be. How is it then that a Christian can be good? I think Paul's answer would be to know. To know that you're hidden with Christ. To know that you're reconciled to God. I want to pray this morning that God allows us to be a people hidden with Christ, reconciled to God, recognizing our future inheritance we have in Christ. Pray with me this morning. Lord, we know that our only means to know you is through faith in Jesus. As we've seen, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to you but through him. And Lord, we confess this morning that we are tempted to create other means by which we might try to know you Lord, other ways that we would try to gain access to you. And so we trust in Christ to bring us all the way home. As we are hidden in his death, we also will be revealed with him in glory. And so, Lord, we anticipate that. We anticipate that time where you would bring us home to you.
Make us live in the righteousness you've equipped us to live in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.